Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So we're going to move on now. We, we typically like to go chronologically uh, in these movies, but we're going to skip just a little bit. And we're going to talk about Cape Fear uh, prior to talking about our final movie, which is Goodfellas, which came out a year before Cape Fear. But Cape Fear was a remake. It was one of these movies that Scorsese made, uh, you know, sort of on assignment. Uh, TJ told me uh, prior to the podcast something I didn't know, that Steven Spielberg, was supposed to make this movie and boy oh boy what a different movie it might have been if it had been spielberg right and uh, because of the different temperament that we're talking about so it's basically about a, a lawyer played by nick nolte who was a defense attorney for robert de niro's uh careful we got three de niro movies it just occurred to me here robert de niro's max katie who had raped a teenage girl sam uh the, the nick nolte character withheld evidence that wouldn't have proven the, the, the client uh, innocent, but it was about that the victim had been uh, sexually promiscuous. And uh, so instead of sharing that with the jury, he held it back because of the horrible crime. And when De Niro's Max Cady goes off to prison for 14 years, he puts the uh, time to good use by he went in illiterate, he learned to read, and it turns out that he's actually a pretty smart guy, right? And uh, so first he learned to read kids' books, and then he started to, you know, uh, read you know more and more challenging books. But he actually educated himself in uh, the law, philosophy, and religion, and realized what Nolte's character had done, and that he had spent this time in jail when he didn't have to. So he determines. He is going to get revenge, okay? And so the first time we see De Niro's Max Cady, he is very imposing in prison, doing dips, you know, to exercise, covered in tattoos, many with a religious connotation, including a big cross on his back. He's getting out of jail, and he, deter he devotes his life to terrorizing Sam, his family, and plotting his revenge. Okay, so he starts showing up, threatening them uh, in kind of very subtle, smart ways so that uh, Nolte's character can't really get the police to do anything about it. One thing leads to another. We start, you know, uh, the De Niro character kills the dog. Then he attacks this woman that Nolte's character was on the verge of having an affair with, really brutalizes her and uh, in order to get, you know, again, to, to get at Sam. He seduces Sam's daughter, and played by Juliette Lewis at the time. She was supposed to be, I think, what, 14 or 15 in the movie. 15. A little creepy here, right? I mean, really, really disturbing and creepy scene between De Niro and Juliette Lewis here. I, I looked it up. I think Juliette Lewis was actually 17 when they made the movie. Wasn't a, you know, there was no sex or anything like that, but, you know, just, again, a little too close for comfort, you know, uh, you know, given the, the, the circumstances. So uh, they decide, uh, first of all, let's see, one way to try and get the Max Cady character to go away is to hire three goons to beat him up. 
and threaten him. Nolte gives him kind of a warning uh, before this happens, and uh, Max Cady is smart enough to record it uh, to get him on tape threatening him. And then they hire what have to be the three most incompetent goons that I've ever seen in a movie, because even though they attack De Niro's character with bike chain and lead pipe, so let's see, a lead pipe and a baseball bat, Max Cady gets the upper hand, beats them, and then gets a restraining order filed against Nolte's character. They decide, okay, we're going to entrap him. So they hire a, guy, a private investigator to set up, um, make it look like Nolte's character is going away with the hope and expectation that uh, De Niro will come in to attack the family. Well, again, Max is too smart and ends up killing the private investigator as well as the maid. Uh, Nolte and his family, played by uh, Jessica Lang as his wife, and again, Juliette Lewis as the daughter, rush off to a houseboat they have on the Cape Fear River. I mean, good heavens, the movie's called Cape Fear. If this isn't about Six World, you know, what else would it be, right? But anyway, uh, and there they have the final showdown with Max Cady's character. After, again, some pretty brutal scenes, they finally do manage to dispatch the Max Cady character. And there's a nice kind of um, closing piece where uh, Nolte's character, he looks at his hands, right? He's laying by the river. There's this big storm and, you know, it's, it's, he's, beat, he's all beat up and stuff. And he looks at his palms. And of course, there's the stigmata on his hands, right? There's the blood on his hands, which is the, you know, the, where the nails went into Jesus. So there's that imagery. There's also this image of him trying to wash the blood off of his hands, which was very Macbethish uh, to me. So the book of Job from the Bible comes again throughout the theme of this movie. It's referred to a number of times, and it's about the loss of innocence in the Juliette Lewis character, right? So she kind of does a voiceover to end the movie where she's talking about how, you know, years later life has gone on and we don't think about those days. We never talked about it. We kind of, you know, kind of we put it into the closet, but the demon is still there. We know it in some way. Okay. So good movie. It was, you know, I, I thought it was a good movie. Certainly for me, not one of his best, but a good movie. The other thing that struck me, and I'm curious about you guys' thoughts on this as I turn it over to you. This to me was kind of the ultimate Brian De Palma movie, right? I couldn't help seeing Brian De Palma in almost every shot of this movie. So thoughts and reactions to this, and then tell me how it, what it had to do with Type 6. TJ, let me hear from you first, please. Well, I can't say I know Brian De Palma's movies well enough to be able to say yes, absolutely. Um, All right. So I'll just okay. leave it at that. But tell us about Type 6 then. Yeah, pass on that, and you know, maybe Russell will have something to say on it. Go ahead. Tell us about the six themes in this movie for you, TJ. Yeah, well, to build on what you know, you'd mentioned earlier is that Spielberg was the original director of the film, handed it over to Scorsese. Scorsese read the script a number of times while shooting Goodfellas and didn't like it. And primarily what he didn't like was that it was more black and white, very much like the original film. So in the original film, the lawyers played by Gregory Peck. And Gregory Peck, probably a one in real life, often played ones on the screen, I did see that version of the movie years ago. I don't remember it well enough, but it's easy for me to imagine that that character was as stalwart and upright as Gregory Peck usually played characters to be. And it was, and that's what the plan for the remake was, is that it was going to be this good family 
of good people with integrity who are then harassed by this horrible, malignant marauder of a person. And Scorsese just thought, ah, I don't like that. I'd like it to be more ambivalent. So it was his contribution to make Nolte have buried the report, to actually have some guilt. And he said, he literally said, the, the way I saw Max was that he becomes the collective guilt of the family. So not only was there that, but there's infidelity in Sam's history with his wife. And then, you know, in what we see in the movie is he gets close to being unfaithful yet again. And then the daughter is in summer school and she's being punished for having been caught smoking marijuana. So it's not the perfect Norman Rockwell American family that's being invaded by this. And then to build on that, there's the fact that Max Cady is both wrong in that he did brutalize and rape a teenage girl, but he is right in that, you know, as he says in the climax of the movie, is that every criminal has the right to a, a zealous defense by their defense lawyer, and he didn't get that. So he really does have an axe to grind, not that his response is at all correct or proportionate to what happened, but he's not just a maniac coming out of nowhere like a wild animal. Right. Like he, so it's, it's, right. you don't get to see it as simply right and wrong. It's, it's all this uncomfortable twisting of shades of gray. And you can't fully be on board with, like, Nick Nolte is good and he should prevail with this. It's like, no, he's got a lot of serious flaws. Yeah. It's, again, it's this idea of paying for your sins, right? Yeah. Very Catholic. Yeah. Uh, another thing is there's yeah. the movie is almost operatic. It's He really turns the dials up on the way he films it, on the way it's presented. Sometimes he even shows, like, like a negative exposure of the film. Like, you're reminded again and again that this is a film. Yes. There's certain things that are exaggerated. You know, when we first see Max Cady, he's in a movie theater, the family's watching a movie, and he's sitting at the front of the theater smoking a cigar that's about the size of a submarine sandwich. It's like this cartoonishly big cigar. And he's laughing uproariously. And if you watch closely, the smoke billowing out from his cigar, there's also smoke coming out from behind him in the seats behind him. They'd rigged up the smoke machine. And I don't know if we're supposed to notice this as an audience member or not, but it's almost like all of this smoke is just radiating from him, almost like he's the devil sent straight from hell. And then at one point, you know, uh, the wife character sees him sitting on the fence outside of their house, and he's in front of a display of fireworks. There's this massive display of fireworks going off. It's bright. It's multicolored. And the family's not even watching it. It's like it's, it's the 4th of July. They live close to where the fireworks go off, and they don't seem to care. And he just happens to be sitting on the fence right in front of it. So there's all kinds of things like that. Or, you know, late in the movie when there's the final confrontation on the houseboat on the river, Max Kitty at one point lights a flare and the wax from it dribbles down over his hand, ostensibly burning him. This is right after a pot of boiling water has been thrown in his face and he doesn't react in the slightest. So he's superhuman in a number of ways, which I thought was an interesting way of like the way a six might perceive a threat. What if this thing goes wrong? What if somebody comes after me and they're impervious to pain? And very much like, like Max Cady seems to be a force of nature. He has access to whatever information he needs about what's happening with the family, about the affair, about why the daughter's in summer school, about what she did. And he can get anywhere. You know, he's in the school when she goes in. Or he's, you know, he, he can infiltrate the house even when there's strings on all the entryways that will trigger notice of anybody entering. He can disguise himself as the housekeeper. He can get in there and poison a dog. In one particularly disturbing scene, he clings to the underside of the family vehicle 
as they flee. <laughs> and they drive for who knows how many hours. And how strong is this guy? I mean, he's got a harness around his belt, but still, what kind of a superhero is this guy that he can actually do this? So, yeah, yeah it's this yeah. exaggerated right. threat. And and in this exaggerated presentation of a movie. Yeah, yes, everything was very heightened in it. And that's part of what made it De Palma-esque. The sort of color saturation was not the usual uh, look for a Scorsese movie. But yes, I, I could see things that reminded me of some of the main De Palma movies. Yeah. Uh, a, a kind of lurid color quality almost. But yeah, I think this movie, it, it was very interesting. I, I kind of get the feeling that Scorsese went into this, looked at the story, and sort of mined out of it what was relevant to him. It gets into more of the kind of deeper psychoanalytic stuff in point six. Many sixes, when their things are not working out well for them, find direction through being against or being persecuted by a bad object to use the psychological language. I don't know what I'm for, but I know what I'm against. I don't know who's my friend, but I know that's my enemy. There's a certain way in which, as we start to get to know Nick Nolte and, uh, and Jessica Lange and Juliette Lewis as his family, they're a mess. Yes. Nobody's communicating. There's no honesty. I just remind people, too, the, the six in stress goes to what point? Mm. Three. And what's the lower side of three? The passion and the problem of three is deceit. Now, that doesn't usually mean being an overt fibber. It's usually right. not telling the truth to save your butt or colluding with something so that we all feel okay, even though we kind of know there's something else going on. That's that family in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like this guy becomes the manifestation the, the 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 bad object that's arising out of all the untruth and unresolved hostility that's in that family. I mean, there's scenes that but of near violence between Jessica Lang and Nick Nolte. They yes. hate each other. Yes. And yet they're still and she's screaming at him, Why did you stay? Why did you work this out for me? Why are we together? Yes. There's and there's like a it's it's like a Greek myth. You're, you're going to yeah. manifest the Furies, which, by the way, is a is a De Palma film. <laughs> yeah, ah, there you go. The Furies. And even the, even the daughter is contemptuous of the father. Yeah. Of the oh daughter. yeah. And there's the scene where you know he's not supposed to be in the house, and you know he starts to stand up, and she says, "Dad, you can't stand up. Remember, you, you know." And it's just you know there's this contempt that they all have. For yeah, each other, shared right? contempt. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost like the bad object is what's necessary and mm -hmm. has to bring them to the brink of destruction yes. for them to kindly get a clue and break the spell and kind of exercise the, the demons that are there in that family. Yes. I also note, though, and it's very important related to the washing of the hands and so forth, at the end, in the final showdown between Robert De Niro and the family— they get the upper hand, not through Nick Nolte, but through the daughter, Juliette Lewis, and then by, again, nature. Mm -hmm. The boat hits a rock, and he falls yeah. off the boat, and then and a series of accidents yes. are what undoes him. None of the actions of the characters are actually what stops him. And in the end, he is not killed by Nick. Nick Nolte wants to kill him. He's ready to kill him, but then... 
nature removes that yes. option from him. He's swept out into the river and he drowns while speaking in tongues and, <laughs> and reciting hymns on the way into the water. Uh, and, and so, again, God takes him. Yes. The forces take him. The forces spare Nick Nolte from something that would have sent him in the direction of his enemy forever. And so th there's this little bit of redemption in it, but that's also the scene, his hands covered with blood and he, he's washed clean in the river. You yes. know, these are, these are not subtle religious. Yeah. Metaphors. <laughs> We're getting here, yeah. you know, they're, they're pretty clear, yeah. but it's also ends ambiguously because the family at the end, you don't know if they're going to make it. Right. You don't know whether they're going to make up. You don't know if the marriage is going to be saved. All they say is we know that it can never be the way it was. Right. They're not, they can't go back. You don't know what future they're going to, but the spell has been broken. Yes. Yeah. It was a line. She said something about, um, you know, the only, you know, fear we had, you know, our life was so idyllic prior to this, that the only fear we had was that it would end in some way. And then it did. Right. So that yeah. only fear that she had came true because it did end in a bad way. But I would say, though, I would say, though, Mario, in the midst of it, I don't think the characters would have at the time described their life as idyllic. No, it absolutely. It looked yeah, so think... in hindsight, right? The good and to a days. child, maybe, right? And to a yeah. child, well, right. There you go, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure, because you're, you're, you're right. I mean, they, they clearly weren't a happy couple. You know, there had been some infidelities and they'd moved around and all that. So, yeah, absolutely right. They were not, they were not what they appeared to be on the surface. There was also a very important uh, Scorsese films. You have to watch the details because there's little bits that go flying by. that are really important. And if you're not paying attention, you miss them. There's a discussion where it becomes clear that he was terrified that she, Jessica Lang, was going to commit suicide. That's how bad things were. Mm -hmm. It's just said almost in passing. That's a rather significant plot point. Yeah. A final thought from me on this. There's a great Simpsons episode that parodies uh, Cape Fear, if you haven't seen it, uh, where uh, the uh, De Niro, Max Cady character is played by Sideshow Bob and voiced by uh, the guy that played Frazier. Kelsey uh, Grammer. Oh, shoot. What was his name? Kelsey Grammer. Thank you. Yeah. Really, really great episode if you ever get the chance to watch it. So, <laughs> so Cape Fear, you know, a, a tough movie to watch, right? Uh, you know, Rush, you made a comment. Uh, you want to share the comment you made about? Sure. Yeah. yeah well, getting ready for this uh, podcast, I, I had to sort of watch the movies where I could fit them in in my teaching schedule. <laughs> I was watching it right before I went to bed and I just thought, you know, this is not the best movie to watch right before you're going to sleep. Yes. It's very, you're, if you want to know what that six angst and anxiety is like, just watch this movie. Yes. You'll, you'll feel plenty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, TJ, was there anything else you want to say on this before we move on? Yeah. Just two small last things. Um, the scene when Max seduces the daughter, Danielle, you know, as Russ, as you're saying that he, um, he leverages the discord between the family. That's how he creates a bond with this teenage girl. He masquerades as her summer school drama teacher who she hasn't met yet. She hasn't seen him, so she doesn't know immediately that it's him. And he speaks to her truthfully in a way that her parents aren't. And this is another change that Scorsese made from the original screenplay. Originally, this was a threatening chase scene. And Scorsese found it much more interesting. And this is, again, a direct quote where he said he uses the logic and emotion of, and the psychology very much in the way that Satan speaks in the Bible. 
It is much more interesting and threatening if Max Cady is making genuinely legitimate points to this teenage girl to bond with her. And Scorsese said, Scorsese said he, he knows some women friends who had similar experiences being attracted to dangerous characters, kind of like that. So there's that push and pull. Yeah, I wanted to say that that kind of voice that he uses is very similar to the voice of Satan in The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, it's yeah. seductive and it's reasonable. It's not blatantly evil. Like, surely you want this and they don't understand you. And why go through all this when you should just have a wife and a life? Why do you got to go through all this nonsense? And of, and of course, Satan seems to be an angel at that point. Right. And and theologically is. And there's this one tiny moment. Uh, just I've, I rewound this a number of times because I found it so amusing. Is right after Sam Bowden has hired the PI to protect the family. They're having dinner and he's telling his wife and daughter, it's like, I've got this PI and I... You know, he knows these kind of people. He's dealt with them before. As soon as I talked to him, I felt completely relaxed. And then right on cue, the phone rings and he flinches. He jumps, as does the other members of the family. They all make this explanation. And the camera closes up on the phone and he's answered it before the first ring has even stopped. So I just love that bit of sixish comedy. It's like, I'm relaxed. Somebody else is thinking, Wah! just did something as innocuous as the yes. phone ringing. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to be relaxed now, Dad. You know, it was the the, the comment of the daughter, right? So, uh, just back to my um, my Brian De Palma reference. So, a lot of the visuals I thought were very De Palma esque here. If you you know go back and watch some of his movies, De Palma sort of sees himself as kind of an heir to Hitchcock, right? And this yeah. was a very Hitchcockian movie through De Palma almost, you know. And I found out recently that they were friends, uh, Scorsese and De Palma, right? So this felt a bit, a bit a little bit like a homage to me. But the scene about the fireworks you were uh you mentioned, TJ, made me think of To Catch a Thief, right? Mm -hmm. Uh the scene with yeah, Carrie Grant and uh what was her name? Was it Eva Marie Saint in that one or uh, Grace Kelly. Kim Novak. I can't write any anyway. Um they're uh, Tippy Hinton, no, as she was birds, but anyway, uh, they're kissing with in Monaco with all these fireworks going off behind, and, and you know, and I just had this real kind of like this is a, just a twisted, bizarro version of that uh, Hitchcock scene, you know, in a way. Yeah. So, anyway, lots of lots of real movie references there. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so movie number four. For me, we have saved the best for last, which is why I wanted to um, sort of change it. And to Russ's point about watching Cape Fear before going to bed, I was re-watching uh, Goodfellas this morning, starting at six o'clock, uh, you know, fitting it in prior to, to, to this as well, and thought to myself, this is no way to start your day, okay, on the one hand. <laughs> However... 
However, what a brilliant freaking movie. I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen Goodfellas, I don't know how many times, right? But it has been a while since I watched it. And it's been a while since I watched it really paying attention. And it took me back to first seeing this movie in 1990, uh, I think is when it was released. Uh, let's yeah. see here. Yep. Yeah, I 1990. Right. It's one of a couple of movies made during my lifetime that I remember seeing and walking out of the theater and saying, wanting to say to somebody, did you just see what I saw? Right. I mean, for, for me, the two movies that come to mind that had that reaction were this and Pulp Fiction. Right. I remember watching Pulp Fiction and saying, this is something new. This is something special. Right. And I got to see it, you know, real time. And that's the reaction I had to Goodfellas, because this is just a brilliant movie. It it is Scorsese at his best. And remind and being reminded that he lost out on for the best director Oscar to Kevin Costner this year uh, is just almost more than I can bear. Right. To, 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 to take. Right. So, uh, so Goodfellas uh, stars again, our friend Robert De Niro. TJ, tell us about the movie Goodfellas, please. Yeah. Here's a quick overview. So Goodfellas is the true story of Henry Hill played by Ray Liotta, who is a foot soldier from the mob in Brooklyn. Sort of true. It's sort of true. Yeah. We'll based on a yeah. true story, based on his autobiography. Yeah. True enough. Yeah. 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 Uh, so he starts with him as an adolescent in the 50s and it goes through into the early 80s. So his local mob boss is Paul Cicero, played by Paul Sorvino, who's just a big, quiet guy that everybody defers to. You never see him raise his voice. You never see him enact violence. But he's just acknowledged as he's the guy. He's the local mob guy. Uh, Henry also looks up to Jimmy the Gent Conway, played by Robert De Niro, who is a thief who genuinely enjoyed robbing people and seems to have a bottomless wallet because he tips everyone and tips everyone generously, including some of the people he robs. And Henry is partnered with Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci, who's a hot-tempered mobster. And there's some pretty famous scenes from that that we'll talk about in a moment. And he meets and marries a woman named Karen. I don't know that we find out her maiden last name, but she's played by Lorraine Bracco, who later went on to be quite successful as one of the leads on The Soprano. She was the psychiatrist. So she's a Jewish woman who eventually falls in love with him and becomes complicit in some of his crimes. The movie's split pretty evenly down the center. In the first half of the movie, we see the charm of the mafia life. We see successful heists, bringing in money and deference from everyone and respect, including from the staff at the Copacabana in a very famous long shot. And in the second half of the movie, we see the horrors of mafia life, including murder, drug addiction, prison, deception of his own mob boss, and eventually Henry's arrest and entry into witness protection in exchange for testifying against his former friends and colleagues. And the movie ends with him living under an assumed identity in some unnamed Midwestern town. He's bored with his new safe life. He can't even get good food. And in his own words, he's living like a schnook. And something Scorsese said about the movie is that it is a materialism versus spiritual life once again which is a topic that he said interests him very much. So the movie was a moderate success when it came out. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think it won one Oscar, which was for Joe Pesci's performance. And it has really stood the test of time. It's one of those movies whose reputation has only escalated as the years have gone by. And it is sometimes credited as being the movie that kind of set the template for the way movies went in the 90s in terms of its creativity, 
its willingness to rewrite the rules. And it's just, there isn't a single level that it doesn't work on. Whether you're talking acting, directing, cinematography, the use of music, editing, it just scores on every single mark on the checklist. Agreed. As I was on, just a long movie, two and a half, 245, I think, hours. Not a single thing I would have taken out. Right. Not a single frame that I would have said, yeah, we didn't need this. It could have gone. Right. I mean, and and also for me, one of the key things is, first of all, the camera work. You, you alluded to the tracking shot when they go into the Copacabana, which is a very famous scene. But also the the use of freeze frames. Right. Is just genius in this movie. I mean, just stopping the action and capturing an idea uh, just again brilliant brilliant movie russ tell us about goodfellas tell us about how you see point six represented in the movie oh my gosh uh there's so much in it i i'm just reveling as what you were just saying about those marvelous stop action scenes where the narration comes in yes because the whole film is presented from henry's point of view yes yeah, he's he's sharing this journey with us it's it's sort of like a movie like you're reading a, a true crime novel, but it's been transferred to this film. Right. I think one of the things you get at the beginning in, in the more positive, innocent is, and he, it's so beautifully presented and expressed in his language and the scenes and everything of his desire to belong. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, going back to mean streets that somehow being made, getting to be part of this was the way to come to security in the world that Henry knew. Yeah. If you want to be somebody in that world, this is what you did. And this is how you're going to get security. And this is how you'd have a place. Right. And so he does a marvelous job at the beginning of the movie, setting that up and making it seem attractive and glamorous. And like when you're seeing the boss, Tootie was his name, I think Tootie. Uh -huh. And he said, Tootie didn't have to move for anybody, you know, yeah. just, <laughs> And his admir yeah, it's admiration yeah. and the yeah. style and the, yeah. this and and this the sense of also his perception that there was some kind of code of honor to all of this mm -hmm. that you would enter into by by joining. And, you know, the the again, the six ish thing that everything you've already mentioned this, DJ, it starts off. It looks like this is going to be a great thing. He's meets his wife and this happens and you know there's some hairy things that happen that but they handle them and and they seem to handle them okay until until you get deeper into the movie and the complexities of and the contradictions of this life start coming home to roost in various ways i think it when i re remember back to this film before i rewatch it just remembering it of course i remember a lot the joe pesci character what do you mean, funny? Funny how? What? Yeah. Like I'm here to yeah. amuse you? Like I'm here to amuse you? Yeah. And killing the the waiter, you know, and just and so forth, and also his surprise and consternation at his setup when he thinks he's going to be made, and yeah. they're they're whacking him. Yeah. And you that know, moment they, of realization he has right before like, they put goes, a bullet in him. Oh, what does he say? Oh, I try. Oh, oh no. shit! Yeah. I think it's what he yeah. says. Oh, or no. oh no, that's yeah. what he says. Oh no, because he realizes he's his own game has been turned against yeah. him. But here again, this is this Scorsese thing of penance. Mm -hmm. The violent guys die violent deaths. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, even if you're going to get that knife to deal with the deer paw, you know, 
<laughs> he's still going to have to pay the price at some point, you know. I, I just the other thing I just like about this movie, I don't think it's particularly six, is just how many of the sort of peripheral characters seem like real people. Yeah, yeah just the other that like the the mom when they go to get something to you know. Yeah off the guy in the trunk of the car that she just very believable as that person they're arguing with her and so forth. But that there's the movie creates, and this is one of Scorsese's gifts, a world you can really believe in. You really believe this is happening. I think that um, again, it's presenting at the end, this again, the moral ambiguity what does he do for his security? Is he going to rat out on his, his pals and everything to avoid certain consequences of his actions? Well, yes, he is going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that you're set up again in a way that it's the movie is not passing judgment on Henry. And it's not just that he's the narrator. I mean, the whole, the way it's shot, the way it's set up, the way it's described, it kind of puts one of the powers of the film is it puts you in his shoes. Mm-hmm. What the heck would you do in this situation? Yeah. There, there, well, there's a lot of other things to, yes, to yeah. be said about it, but I, I think it, it, the whole overarching story of it is you covered very well, TJ. Yeah, and it's this six-ish thing of that we saw in all of the films too. I don't think of all of the characters we've discussed. I think Henry is the least concerned with goodness, which is funny given the name of the movie. Yeah. Good fellas. There aren't any good fellas in this movie right. from that right. point of view. There aren't any. Right. But he's not concerned with that. He's he's not like Harvey Keitel in Mean Streets. He's not that guy. Right. But he's still concerned with wrestling with his sense of honor and what that means in the context of the life he's living in. Yeah. So that is six-ish too, even though he's he's not I would describe Henry as a faith-based or religious guy. No, no <laughs> not no. at all. No, the, 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 look, these folks are the ultimate pragmatists, right? And even though they pay lip service to honor and code, he has that one stretch of dialogue uh, where he's talking or uh, voiceover where he's talking about, you know, these guys were just killing each other, right? At first, you know, we brought off that there would be a reason, but, you know, sometimes it would be guys just getting into an argument over nothing, and then all of a sudden somebody gets shot. And there's that scene, too, you know, again, about the injustice and danger of the world where Spider, played from uh, played by Michael Imperioli, who later went on to be in The Sopranos, you know, it's just this kid who's trying to make a buck, you know, by serving these gangsters playing poker, and Joe Pesci kind of shoots him, on a dare almost, you know, because the other guys are embarrassing him from taking guff from the kid. And then there's that scene again to, to, to talk about the moral, I wouldn't even call it ambiguity, but moral indifference of things is they're arguing, you know, what they're arguing over is who's going to dig the hole, right? You know, and, and, and Jimmy Conway, the, the De Niro character says to him, well, you're digging the hole this time. And Pesci's like, Oh, what? Like I never dug a hole before. I've done plenty of holes. I'll dig this hole. I don't care. You know? And so it's, there, there is this, it's a, this is kind of the most existential movie, I think, of the ones that we've talked about, right? Where, where stuff just happens. I was looking for security by being a mobster and it just rained down all this horror and terror on me for this price I paid for wanting this sense of security. And there's no outcome into to it. You know, there's nothing to look forward to, to hold on to. 
Yeah, esteem too. Security and esteem, yes. both. But but I was thinking about how some of these kind of absurd existential conversations, like that one when they're digging the hole, <laughs> are kind of precursors to some of the conversations in Pulp Fiction. Yes, yes. You know, the, when they're at but, the when house. they're on the way to assassinate somebody, and they're yeah. talking about the differences of of, of fast food in Europe. You yes, know? yes. <laughs> Yeah, the conversation at the mother's house, uh, Joe Pesci's mother is actually played by Martin Scorsese's mother. And yes. she's, she's talking about the, uh, the painting she did. And just my, my favorite line in the movie, and it's not one of the ones that stands out, but it's like, look, yeah, I like this one. You got the one dog looking this way. You got the other dog looking the other way. And you got the guy sitting there. What do you want from me? You know, I mean, it just for me, I just love that line. I could listen to it a million times because it's just so it's just so something somebody would say. Right. You know, yeah. it's just such a real line of dialogue that you can hear from these guys. So the other thing that that struck me about this film, seeing it again, and it, it's I'm just trying to articulate it now. It was more of a sense. There's a sense in this one that partly what Scorsese is looking at, even though in a certain way, this is, as we might say, his, his least overtly spiritual movie, his most pragmatic existential yeah. movie of all of them that we've looked at, certainly. And maybe even amongst his notable films, I would say that's true. There's another way in which he's showing how none of these people are really aware at all of the world that they're living in. They're all going about their business, yakking, doing this and that. But there's a profound lack of realism in the realism. It's realistically depicting people who are not in touch with reality or what they're doing or how they're living. Yes. Yes, and that, was... when I think about that film and how it, it got to me, that's how it got to me. It's just showing just regular people living their lives with no clue about what their life is that they're living. Yes. Or what other people outside of their life are looking for, right? There's that scene where his yeah. wife is talking about spending the afternoon with all the other wives and about how... They're, you know, they talk about stupid things and they wear cheap clothes and they have, you know, bad skin and all these things where they think they're these glamorous people, but they're living this, you know, kind of low quality sort of existence, yeah. but thinking they're kings and queens, right? Yeah, that's that's, again, one of those microcosm scenes. Yeah. In the, Scorsese, in the Scorsese of you're going to find those where in a way what she's saying is the whole film. Yes. Yeah. So um, to, to tie this to kind of sickness, and again, we're talking pretty low level, you know, type six. No, this is not healthy six in this film. <laughs> there's not, there's not, gonna, not, healthy not much healthy six in, in Goodfellas, no. <laughs> yeah, um, but there's uh, paranoia in the extreme, right? I mean, this movie is about And it keeps paranoia. escalating. Absolutely. And when we get to that, you know, when, so there is this kind of break in the movie and it has to do with drugs, right? I mean, it has to do with, you know, things were going okay until Henry ends up going to jail for four years. And the only way he can support his family is by dealing drugs from prison to get family to them. Now that's a big no, no in the mob world, allegedly, right. You know, it goes back to the Godfather even. And, but, he becomes, you know, an addict like many, you know, people get involved in that world do and his world starts to crumble. But there's also this different tone. Right. Whereas before the first half of the movie is kind of epitomized by that powerful 
Pauly character. You know, I don't have to move for anybody. We're kings of the yeah. world. Now, all of a sudden, there's just fear and anxiety and, you know, that sort of coke paranoia coming into play. And everything really changes at that point. That you remind me of something else I noticed this time is that that clearly is the turning point, because while there aren't a lot of rules in that mob world, that's one of them. And he crosses it. Yes, he crosses that rule. What his ostensible reason is to take care of his family. Now, can we think of another recent dramatic thing where somebody crosses a line around the sale of drugs to take care of their family and it leads them into a whole bunch of not dark stuff? It's Breaking Bad. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like the template for the whole idea of Breaking Bad right there. Yes. That there's certain lines. That's one thing I, I think this is also saying, that, that there are different <laughs> circles of hell. Mm. And that if you cross certain lines, you're going to go into, even if your life is difficult, you have no idea how difficult it can get. I think that's another reason why this is a certain there's a certain queasiness to watching this film because yes. it it takes you there. Yes. Yeah. Like Breaking Bad did. Yeah. Yes, another movie where things just keep getting worse and worse. And, you know, as, as we were talking after I mentioned about this being the least of his overtly, you know, religious movies, I started thinking about the Dostoevsky line, you know, where, if, you know, God didn't exist, all things are possible, right? So it's, you know, it's it's the notion of God that keeps people on the, on the right path, the fear of punishment. And that was missing for these folks. And, uh, and, and the, the consequences were there. Uh, for sure. Yeah, that that's a really good point, Mario. And I want to just highlight that for a second because I think that's another way you could look at this. I think all of Scorsese's major films are exploration of some kind of question having to do with faith, having to do with doubt, yeah. you know, his recurrent themes. This one, from that point of view, and I never thought of it this way until you just said that, it's sort of an exploration. It's an it's like what if there isn't a God? Yeah. What if there is no faith? Without faith and without God and without that Catholic part of my life, what does life look like? Mm-hmm. Where does it go? And I kind of suddenly have this sense that that is one way he might have been exploring the themes that he does in this yeah. film. Yeah. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So I want to talk about some of the characters and the, you know, and, and, and type six, because Henry seemed like a sixish character. And for me, you know, one of the things I think when I hear people talk about different Enneagram types, they're often reflecting the kind of people 
who go to Enneagram workshops, right? So our views of different Enneagram types are skewed. It's, it's, a, it's a particular sample. So the sixes that we see and understand are the kind of people that we, you know, encounter at a, at a workshop or whatever. But there are a whole lot of sixes out there who aren't like that, right? And who are more, you know, again, not the Woody Allen nebbishy sort of six, but kind of scary, intimidating six. So I thought Henry was a good example of a six-ish character. And it brings us to the, the Jimmy Conway, Robert De Niro conversation that I think yeah. would be interesting to have here, right? So um, tell me, Russ, about the Jimmy Conway character and De Niro in general. Well, you know, I think, well, a, a couple of things. I tend to agree with you. And in the early days when Don and I were doing our Enneagram trainings, we used to have a section of showing film clips in one of the advanced trainings that just have people give the reasons of why they thought somebody was a, a type. And we used Henry as an example of the six. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And just, wait, you didn't have to agree with this, but we were more interested yeah. in what was your reasoning? Exactly. Why do you see what you see? But going back to Jimmy Conway, it's interesting because neither he nor Henry are kind of the doubt riddled nebishy right. six. Neither of them are, but right. they're different in their temperament. There's a kind of a assurance around Jimmy Conway that Henry never quite succeeds in having. He he has good bluster, but his insecurities are more obvious. Yet I you know Robert De Niro has done a lot of characters along the lines of of Jimmy Conway. He's done yes. a number of them, which are this kind of more hard edged side. But I think it's as you said. There's a way in which. It, it, as I started to look at sixes and sort of the tracking them down through the range of their various manifestations and ideas, depending on how healthy, average, or unhealthy they are, you know, working with what we used to call the levels, mm-hmm. right? That there's a kind of a confidence, then there's kind of more of a chaotic, nervous thing. But as you get into the more unhealthy, there's a the confidence returns in, mm-hmm. in a certain number of sixes where there's more of it could look like fanaticism, but it could just look like a hard ass person determined to do whatever pragmatically they need to do for their family, for what they believe in, etc. And they don't have so many limits. And I see Jimmy Conway as that kind of character. He's already gone further than Henry. He's further down the road away from redemption, shall we say. And so there's a yeah. sense, as I said, that it, there go, we go through this period of confusion and back and forth and overthinking of things, but then sixes tend to get like an idée fixe or, or something they're obsessed with or something they're against and something, and all of their psyche and energy gets oriented around that. It could be something they're loyal to. It could be an idea that they believe in. It could be again about an enemy or it could be about taking care of a certain person at all costs. But I think you see in this character that, that he is just, in a sense, although he looks more confident and together than Henry, he's actually more deteriorated than he is. That's that's the way, as I've watched it over the years, that keeps coming back to me. He'll do stuff that Henry would hesitate to do. Yeah. And I was reading about the character, uh, the, the person, that that character yeah. is based on. His name is actually yeah. Jimmy Burke. So these were, you know, as TJ said, based on real guys, yeah, yeah. based on real people. And that guy had a horrific 
childhood and life. I mean, he was, you know, a, you know, a, in growing up in foster homes at a very early age, you know, a victim of sexual and physical violence and, you know, was just a real hardened criminal, you know, at a very early age. So he was he was a real a bad person. And I agree with you. There is this element of, again, it's interesting the way you put it, Russ, about those transitions, because, again, if you think about this as somebody who's seeking security in some way, the more away from it we feel, the more we grasp onto that thing that gives us a feeling of it, right? So even if it's our hatred and anger, at least I know where I stand with it, right? I can just yes. sort of lash out with it. So uh, really great observations. Yeah. And it's it's in that kind of mental structure, and you see a similar thing in ones, hmm. one can justify terrible actions. Yeah. I have a reason to do it. Yes. So it was interesting. So so before we, because uh, I do want to talk a little bit more about De Niro because that's interesting to me. But yeah. TJ, uh, any uh, thoughts on Goodfellas that uh, you wanted to share? Yeah, a few different things. Um, one of the things that you find a lot in Scorsese's work, like I was referring to this earlier, is these stark contrasts. And that happens a lot with the freeze frames in this movie. It's something you referred to directly. And it was inspired by something that happened to him once when he was a youngster on the street. He observed two drunks in his neighborhood, one of whom was so drunk that the other one was stealing the guy's shoes. And as this was happening, as he was witnessing, <laughs> he heard the music coming through a window of Fats Domino's song, When My Dreamboat Comes Home, which is really upbeat and uplifting. And the contrast of these two things just hit him in the heart. And he thought, why don't they do that in film? And thought, you know, a love scene with love music is just mediocre. So we love these strange contrasts. So the movie starts with you know, De Niro and Pesci and Leota in a car. And they're driving. They don't know why. And they hear this knocking sound. And eventually they realize it's because the guy that they thought they murdered, who's in the trunk of the car, is still alive. They pull over and then they stab him and they shoot him again before burying him. And that's Billy Batts, who's a made man, we find out later. And then we, you know, we freeze frame from that moment, and that's when we hear that first line saying, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. That's a weird thing to structure that moment, you know, like to, if you were to put something really attractive, like we're about to see of somebody deferring or getting a big payday from a robbery, that yeah, makes like sense. Yeah, like the Copacabana, yeah, right. right. Yeah, right. but right. an opening scene where you just yeah. completed an incomplete murder, that's really brutal. <laughs> <laughs> and there's moments like that that happen again and again and again. So early in the movie, you know, his father finds out that he's skipping school and he's beating them with a belt, yelling at him, freeze frame of the father, you know, brandishing that belt. And then the voiceover is kind of lackadaisical saying, you know, I figure everybody had to take a beating sometime. It wasn't anguish. It wasn't, I hate my right. father. I couldn't wait to get away. It was just like, yeah, whatever. Or, you know, in another yeah. scene, not too long you gotta later. You got to take your licks. <laughs> He, um, he lights a bunch of cars on fire and they blow up as he's running away, freeze frame on that. And then the voiceover talks about how some guys from the neighborhood brought home his mother's groceries for her. Why? Out of respect. You know, as, as cars are blowing up or you know, when they beat Billy Bats to death, there's a Donovan song playing, like this peace-loving folky. That was, uh, it was uh, Hurdy Gurdy Man, Hurdy -Gurdy if Man. I recall. Hurdy. Yeah, Atlanta. Yeah. I, I just wanted to point out about the freeze frame with the cars. Something we didn't touch on, I wanted to mention, crucifix images throughout Scorsese's work, right? I mean, just the yeah. number of people with their arms spread, and, and that was a good example of one there, right? So he's fleeing away, 
And when the freeze frame, his arms are spread out, you know, kind of with the crucifix thing. And, you know, one could say that the flames of hell in the background, right? So again, that dichotomy. But anyway, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, the scene, uh, Russ, you were referring to earlier, where they stop off and they end up having a full meal with Joe Pesci's character's mother, played by Martin Scorsese's mother, who really did cook for them. They really did eat a full meal of pasta and yeah. beans, and all that dialogue was improvised. <laughs> Scorsese didn't tell his mother what the overall scenario was. Pasta fazul. <laughs> so she was just improvising the scene of being an Italian mother, chatting oh, lovingly with her son and his friends, not knowing that there was a dead body in the back of the trunk that they were going off to bury. And in that scene, you can see Henry's kind of quiet. He's kind of disturbed by this, that we're all having this friendly conversation about the mother's painting when there's a corpse of a made guy in the back. And that's one of the other rules in yes. the mafia is like, you don't touch a made yeah. guy, period, which is part of the whole unraveling for him. And then another famous contrast in the right. movie is there's a big montage. Uh, we hear the, the piano coda of Layla, which is several minutes long, as the camera is showing us all these different mobsters involved in the Lufthansa heist that Jimmy then killed to cover up his own crime. So there yes. are corpses are being dumped from a, from a dumpster into a, into a garbage truck or we find one on a meat hook in a, in a freezer truck and different things like that. Just brutal stuff set to the music, the sad longing music of unrequited love of Layla. So all of these things happening again and yeah. again, just to kind of, to push you of like, Oh, this is fun. Well, actually it's not. Oh, this is violent. Oh, but there's this other side to it. You can't just look at it in one way. As you say that too, you remind me of, a first impression that I had when I saw this film, you know, when it first came out in 1990, I thought in a way it was Scorsese's response to The Godfather. Mm. Say more. That's interesting. That um, there was a way that even though people were getting whacked and stuff in The Godfather, it still managed to portray something romantic. Yeah about life in the mob that, you know, became popular for a long time thereafter. Yeah. And he wanted to say, there's nothing romantic about it. Yeah. This is, this is hell on earth actually. And here's what it really looks like from somebody who had a pretty close up view of what was going on. Now, you know, whatever Mario Puzo had going on with all that, which I suspect he did of something and whatever, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola did that. I think, Scorsese was in some sense not just that film but there were a series of movies coming out about the mob that were sort of not exactly glamorizing it but almost yeah romanticizing in a way yeah, romanticizing it yeah. and he said honey it ain't romantic and the what made me think of that TJ was the juxtaposition of this most romantic music against events that are anything but romantic yeah, seemingly of good friends yeah. and associates. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, Mean Streets came yeah. out a year after yeah. The Godfather, and one of the scenes early on is one of the mobsters hustling a couple of teenagers for 20 bucks when they wanted to buy some firecrackers. That doesn't sound very badass right. for the maf mafia guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you really, that Mean Streets is, is, is definitely a precursor to this film. Yeah. Definitely yeah. a precursor, but it was just showing there. These are not profound individuals. They're sort of stumbling through life like everybody else, but with uh, more extreme edges, yes. you could yes. say. 
Yes. In general, like a big thing that the second half of the movie emphasizes again and again, and very much a sixth theme is, you know, I want to feel secure. I want to know where I stand. The second half of the movie makes it clear that even though life in the mafia seems to promise that, it does not deliver. So Joe Pesci's character kills Billy Bats, even though he's a made guy. You need permission to go against him. They didn't get it. Paulie wants to find out what happened to Billy Bats. Henry lies to his face. And, you know, that's he's the one person you're never supposed to lie to. Uh, Tommy kills Spider, you know, as we talked about before, establishing he could lose it on anybody at any time. Uh, Tommy, instead of getting made, gets shot in the head. Karen consults with Jimmy near the end of the movie, even though he seems to be helping her. She senses that he's setting up to get her killed. You know, just go in that door. There's some nice Christian Dior dresses and she gets spooked yeah. and, and, no, and go, runs away. Go, go. Yeah. And then when Henry consults with Jimmy, yeah. the same thing happens. And there's this interesting camera effect that, you know, I watched this with my partner, Lindsay, and she'd never seen it. There's this camera effect that I first saw in a documentary about cinematography before I'd ever seen the movie, where the two of them are sitting in a booth at the diner, and the camera is zooming in and backing up at the exact same rate. So if you watch it care carefully, the frame never changes, but the background seems to be undulating in this weird way. The actors look entirely consistent, but the background just, it's doing this thing that's not immediately noticeable, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's this visual way of saying, all is not well. And here's this guy that Henry has known literally for decades. And he even says, you know, when, when, they, when they come to kill you, it's not like, like it is in the movies. They don't yell, they don't threaten. The That's killers right. have smiles on their faces. Right. And they seemingly have this really pleasant meal and interaction and Jimmy's gonna help them. And first he wants to send them to Florida to murder this guy, but he just knows if I go, I'm going to be killed too. So there is no security. All the rules can be broken. They come at you when you're at your weakest too, is something that he said that I, that I noticed there. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. I think. And so if you remember the, how the movie ends, you've got uh, Henry, the Ray Liotta character, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the witness protection program, you know, living like a schnook. And then it cuts from that to Joe Pesci in full gangster attire now, if you notice, what he's wearing is not clothing of the day. It's old-time Jimmy Cagney gangster attire shooting his gun at the camera, right? So you think the movie has ended with Henry picking up his newspaper in the lawn, and then there's this cut, which is a reference to a Jimmy Cagney movie. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. That ends the same way after Cagney dies. They show him shooting at the camera. But it's this idea, and I think this is the theme that ties all of these movies together. To me, what that is saying is don't get too comfortable, right? Don't think that the danger is ever gone. Don't think that you're ever safe. Danger lurks out there somewhere. And in all of these movies, that's the theme that comes back and forth. And I think that's the theme of the six, you know, and for better or worse, right? I mean, it is a rough world, right? Bad things do happen and it is good to be safe, right? That's the, that's the, you know, the thing that the six brings to us is this awareness, but the, it's this disconcerting thing of don't ever get too comfortable because the wolf is out there somewhere. Yeah. Right? Stay awake. Yes. Stay awake. Stay, stay, as they say, stay frosty. That's what they say nowadays, right? <laughs> so there's one thing we jumped over and I want to touch on because we had a conversation prior to this and then we, we've got to wrap up here, but De Niro, 
a lot of sick stuff going on here, right? So, uh, you know, and again, I, I haven't, you know, watched interviews of De Niro. There aren't that many of them, so I haven't got a sense of him. I haven't read any books about him. But I'm starting to realize that a lot of the characters he plays could be sixes, you know, even ones that I thought were sort of eightish. Uh, curious about your thoughts on that, guys. Yeah, I, I tend to think so. I wasn't sure. And I know some of our colleagues have typed him as a four, but as you and I discussed, that it would be very peculiar for an actor to not once in a 40 or 50 year long acting career to never play their own type. Right. He hasn't played a four once. Right. Not a single time. That would be really surprising. Yeah. So, you know, I think the general bets are on eight or six. But yeah. as we were discussing, Mario, the more I study him and the more I read about his childhood and so forth, the more I tend to vote for six. He was described as a very shy child. Yeah. And the acting was a way he started to come out of his shyness and isolation. He came from a broken home. His family parted ways because his father came out as gay. Oh, interesting. In, in, in a time where that would have been really tough for a kid, yeah. as you can imagine. And so I think he knows how to adopt that aggressive, hard-ass persona that has served him so well in so many of these movies. But he's also a thoughtful guy. He's also a quiet guy. He's also a very private yeah. fellow. And the sort of sense of provocation to me feels more six than eight. Yeah. Eights, generally speaking, are not provocateurs, but sixes can sure be provocateurs. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I, it's, it's, so it's interesting for me, you know, as again, watching these characters, I would, you know, again, certainly the, I would agree the Jimmy Conway character is a six from Goodfellas, the Johnny Boy in Mean Streets, very much a six can make the argument that Max Cady is a six in, in Cape Fear. and uh, Dad and Meet the Parents. Uh, absolutely. Uh, classic, <laughs> classic six character. And, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to go back at a lot of these things that I used to think of as eights, like the Jake LaMotta portrayal and that sort of thing, and rewatch them and say, hmm, maybe there's some six stuff going on here that uh, I hadn't quite seen before. All right, great. Yeah. So, 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 guys, thank you for uh, this conversation. This has been great. Uh, Russ, again, we really appreciate you uh, being here to be our guest and to share your insights with us. Again, go to RussHudson.com and EnneagramInstitute.com to find out more about Russ. Russ has, um, you know, always got new and interesting things happening. So, uh, you know, again, huge respect for you and your work, Russ, and look forward to us hanging out in person again one of these days yeah. at some point. Um, <laughs> TJ, as always, thank you. I, I know you're up and doing some work again. Real quick, if you don't mind, tell us what you're doing up there in Canada, TJ. I'm helping a friend work Plug on your gig for us. With yeah, I'm helping a friend work on a one-person show whose theme we just identified yesterday is liminality, being in that in-between state. Nice. And that is a term that I just learned from yep. Russ Hudson last year. <laughs> Very good. All right. So you've been listening to a, another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, this has been about Martin Scorsese and Enneagram Type 6. Guys, thank you. Great to see you. And see you next time. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast 
by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time. Thank you.